Hi everyone, welcome to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we interview Asian entrepreneurs and professionals around the world. And for this season, we're going to take our conversations deeper about our Asian identity and hustle stories. We also want to announce that we are hosting our first ever Asian Hustle Network Uplifted Conference next spring in Las Vegas. For more info and to reserve your seats, check out our website at asianhustlenetwork.com. Don't forget to grab a copy of our recently released book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, which tells the personal stories of how 21 Asian American entrepreneurs are shifting culture. You can order it on our website as well. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Joe Jitsukawa. Joe is a serial entrepreneur, comedian, investor, and public speaker. He was born and raised in Los Angeles and grew up surrounded by the growing gang culture in L.A., Tired of the regular nine to five job, Joe quit and co-founded Just Kidding Films, a comedy YouTube channel in 2007. Through this channel, Joe and his team of friends shoot comic sketches through which they teach good things in a bad way. Just Kidding Film has almost 2 million subscribers. Besides YouTube, Joe has also found success in different business ventures, such as apparel, consulting, e-commerce, and investing. He likes advising and investing in several businesses, including a growing much a franchise in LA called Joombi. Passionate about helping others, Joe created a free online education platform called Jomalian Academy that now provides over 20,000 students with basic life skills and self-improvement education. Joe, welcome to the show. Hello. What's up, everybody? Thanks for having me. <laughs> of course. We're so excited to have you on the show. I think we mentioned earlier before we started recording that Maggie and I were watching like hours and hours of your content just to get a refresher, everything. We just realized, dude, Joe has done so much and made such good videos throughout the last like 13, 14 years, dude. So such a huge honor to having the show. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Because when I first started YouTube, this was what, 2007? Yeah. And it's insane because none of this was like planned. Everything was just, you know, we learn as we went. And it's just been a crazy journey because I'm always thinking like, when is this going to end? Because in entertainment, you know, like it doesn't last forever. And so I'm just holding on and I just keep going. And, and it's funny because like we have this joke saying that we are the cockroaches of YouTube because we can survive anything nuclear apocalypse. Like we've seen people come and go, um, you know, especially on YouTube, especially on new media, like it's, you know, you go viral and then you're gone. Right. But we've been super fortunate because I think we have such a loyal fan base that's stuck with us for like over 10 years. And I'm every day, I'm just like grateful. Like, wow, these guys, they, they don't get bored of us and I'm, I'm bored of myself and they're not even bored of us. And, and it's wild because like one of my channels um, this year will be our 10 year anniversary, which is just kidding news. We, we film it right here in this set. But the channel you're referencing, Just Kidding Films, I think we stopped filming 
that maybe four years ago or so, but it's still active. But yeah, it's been 15 ish years now. So it's, it's been a long time. That's a whole high school student. That yeah. is crazy. And yeah, I mean, just kind of echoing what Brian said, I remember watching your videos and you guys were just so authentic. Like it didn't seem like you guys were trying to be someone that you were not. And I think that's what made it so special that people just wanted to laugh and see what you guys were putting out. I know you mentioned that like all of this was so unexpected, but I want to know, like, did you guys even have like goals that you wanted to set forth in mind? And what were you expecting at the time? Like, did you want some sort of achievement out of, you know, creating all these YouTube videos or was it just more of like, let's just have fun and, you know, go with the flow we don't know what's going to come out of this, you know? Yeah. It's, I guess it did start with a mission and in the early two thousands and also like the late nineties, right. Uh, me and bar, my, my biz partner, we're, we're product basically of the nineties era and growing up watching in living color, Saturday night live, all that slapstick comedy, you know, that really influenced our taste in comedy and growing up, you guys remember, it wasn't too long ago that Asians had horrible representation. Like people talk about, we have no representation now. It's like, do you guys remember 1999 or freaking 2005 even like it's like YouTube was basically our gift. Like without YouTube, I don't think there would be any English speaking Asian community. Like we were, we, we didn't have Hollywood. Like Hollywood was just like Kung Fu masters and maybe like a liquor store owner in like a, in, in like a movie or something. We never became lead characters, but now you have so many people who are lead characters. And I, and I feel like it's so awesome to, to be a part of all of that. But in the early ages, I remember watching comedy and I remember watching comedians and like, you know, even with the OGs like Margaret Cho and like, even, even like um, the second wave, like Bobby Lee's and stuff. I was like, damn, this is so cool. I wish there was more of that out there because some of the stuff I didn't relate to because a lot of the Asians on TV they weren't like the SGV Asians. They weren't like the LA Asians. They weren't like the NorCal Asians. They were like maybe Asian kids that grew up maybe in white neighborhoods because most of those characters were like written by maybe Jewish kids in Hollywood who were like, oh, I remember growing up with the Asian kid like this. And then that's who that was their portrayal of them. Right. But and in, in for me, when I was doing this stuff, I was like, dude, how come there's nothing for us? Like, you know, black folks, they have in living color that tells the stories of like their neighborhood and the, the comedy that goes beyond like behind them. And then like all this other stuff, I felt like, yeah, I felt like being made fun of, but I didn't feel like they were laughing with us. So I was like, let's let's create content that like we can relate with like shit that we want to see that's out there. That's authentic to us. You know, like the stuff that goes on in our household, how funny it is when it's like, you know, the cultural differences, even within the house, when the parents are foreign and an immigrant, and then, and then you're like the first generation growing up in America and all the difficulties we have to go through and let's do it with a comedic twist, you know? And I, I, that was always my mission is like, let's create content and stories and things that we grew up with, like in our community. And although I'm Japanese American, sometimes I feel more Vietnamese than Japanese or more Chinese, because let's face it in America, it's like a huge melting pot. Right. And you might be spending more hours with a different culture than your parents. And then you start to absorb that and you start to like 
become that and you start to, you know, have little elements of who you are based of all these cultures. And that's how we got to learn, like, you know, all of these different accents and the nuances and you spend hours and hours at your friend's house, you're going to be able to copy your Korean, their Korean uncle or like their Vietnamese mom or whatever. Right. And then you, you get to see the nuances, but the, but the things that bring us together, like our parents beating our asses when we don't get a good grade or like whatever, we can all laugh at that. Like we're laughing in pain, but we can all relate. And that's the kind of stuff we wanted to create. I love that a lot. And to be completely honest, I think it was only like within the next, the last five years where I realized you were Japanese because all your videos, you get some like Vietnamese accents, Korean accents. I just like, wait a minute, Joe's Japanese. What the hell? (laughs) Bro, I, we actually made it a point to never reveal our race or ethnicity because Bart's Chinese and all that. And when we first started, right, we were just doing, you know, Cholo characters from East LA. We were doing, you know, Chinese, Vietnamese, Korean, whatever. Right. And, um, when we started reading the comments, there were a lot of people like fighting over what ethnicity we were. And I remember back in the day, Asians weren't like standing in solidarity the way that they do now. There was way more division. And then it's kind of like, even if you go to school, right? If you went to a place that had a lot of Asians, like the Koreans hung out with Koreans, the Chinese with the Chinese, and it was way more like separated. Now it's like, everyone's more united. It's a pretty beautiful thing to witness. But when I was in high school and during that time, my goal was to really create the identity of what is Asian American and don't be so like devout or like, don't be so like, like, like limited to just sticking to your own little group. And since we didn't have representation, I noticed that a lot of people, they wanted to claim us for selfish reasons. They would be like, no, they're, uh, they're Chinese. Fuck you guys. They're representing us, you know? And, And I was just like, I don't like that kind of like vibe that it was creating in our community. So I was like, let's play a game and make this where they have to keep guessing. And I don't want to put myself out there and make my identity be my ethnicity or culture. I want to be like the representation of this new identity of what's Asian American. Yeah. I want to speak real quick. Sorry, Maggie. Yeah. Um, I can definitely tell you're a California Asian because they're the only (laughs) group of Asians that feel like, Oh my God, there's so many of us that we see the vision. Whereas like you talk to Asians in the Midwest or like not from like the coast area, they're always like, what are you talking about? There's so little of us that like we're always stuck together. And for us, it's like, there's just so many of us. Why are we so segregated? And it's like, I could tell you immediately by that statement, you're a California Asian. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I just wanted to say, like, I think it's so compelling that you picked up on that so fast because Brian and I, we always talk about that. And I think there is still some little like hints of it here and there where we do normally stick with our own ethnicity, right? There's like Chinese that sticks with the Chinese, the Korean sticks with the Koreans, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of it comes from our parents. You know, our parents teach us to like, you know, only stick with who and what you know, like don't try to venture out and, you know, it's hard to trust people and stuff 
like that. And I think we adopt that mindset from a lot of our parents and our grandparents and stuff like that. And it's, it wasn't until like after COVID when we're like kind of diving deeper into like learning about our Asian cultural heritage where everyone is like, you know what, why is there so much division? We need to like stick together and we're an Asian community, not, you know, Chinese or Vietnamese or Korean. You know, we have so many similarities in terms of our struggles, our, our upbringings and stuff like that. There's more similarities than there are differences. But for you to like notice that so early on when you were creating these skits and, um, you know, when you were going into comedy and creating these videos that you wanted people to like recognize that we're an Asian community and we need to work together to, you know, make sure that we're able to go forward together. That is something that's very, very compelling. Yeah. Thanks. You know, it's, it's, I think being in comedy and like creating content, you start to see the world like as a, as kind of like these big groups, you know, where like it's, when you grow up, I think like you're just in your neighborhood with your small circle of friends, especially because the online, like online world wasn't like what it is today where you could become best friends with a middle-aged lady in the Midwest over a video game or whatever, right? Like they did have that, but it wasn't as like accessible where now you can see a vlogger from every single country and see how they live. And it's bringing us way more closer. But since we were in the early stages of that, I was able to witness like how people would react to our content and then kind of adjust from there. So I, I feel pretty grateful that I was able to see that early on. Yeah, I feel grateful that you have too, because I'm being completely honest, your content has shaped a lot of my like early teenage, mid 20 years just by watching it, because I'll be honest here, like I was one of those unconfident Asian kids that I've probably felt a lot more confident around other Asian people. But when, as soon as you walk to an atmosphere where it's not Asian anymore, I don't know how to, to hold myself. I don't know how to represent myself. I don't know how to like be myself, right? So I'm going to ask you a really spicy, spicy, hot topic. I want okay. to talk about Asian male masculinity. Okay. And the reason why I asked that question is I remember seeing a comment that you made like months back regarding like Asian males are often portrayed as weak, nerdy, whatever. So I want to ask a question regarding that and like representing yourself as like an Asian male in comedy. Like how did that really affect the way that you saw yourself and the way that you want other Asian guys to feel? That's a really good question because like I remember, so I grew up in a predominantly black and Mexican neighborhood. Right. And some would call it the ghetto. Right. And uh, there used to be a big Japanese population. It's called uh, the, the city's called Gardena. And it was a farm town back in the day in the South Bay here in L.A. And then they they uh, as as a city grew, you know, like so did the population change. But I was unaware of a lot of the things that were different from, from, I would say like middle-class world, right. Meaning like usually in poor places, violence is prevalent. Right. And the idea of masculinity, especially in that era, the late nineties, early 2000 was defined by gangster men, right? Like you listen to West coast rap, whatever, the most baddest on the block, the most gangsterous, the most violent, right. That, and it was a violent era all around. Like, I think, you know, it was pretty normal to get your ass completely beat by your parents, by siblings, by kids on the street. It was much more uh, machismo in its way. Right. So growing up, that's what I was used to. And so how I define max masculinity, even moving here to Monterey Park, where it's predominantly Asian, I was 
in that world. And it was, it was probably completely different from how other people defined it. And I also didn't grow up around timid, nerdy Asian men, right? My brother, he grew up around like that Venice Dogtown kind of crew with the skateboarders and extreme sports people. And also like a lot of my Asian American friends were either like gang related or into, you know, more of the delinquent behavior stuff. So they were wild, aggressive, high energy. I did have a few friends who fit the stereotype of like the nerdy textbook kid or whatever. Right. I didn't know that was actually normal Asian. And we were the weird ones. I had no clue. And also this is true in Hawaii too. If you go to Hawaii, like most of the Asian kids out there, you know, they're doing what Hawaii stuff, you, you're outdoorsy, you're surfing, you're fit, you're outgoing. It's a totally different culture. So it wasn't till later on in life that I realized that this stereotype of this Asian nerd or whatever I saw on TV, I was like, what? This is crazy. So this is the normal Asian like majority. And then I would start traveling. I would start speaking. I would go to colleges and I would see all these like more nerdier kids or whatever. And I'm like, oh, shit, I've, I've been living in the bubble. And so if you live in SGV or if you live in a L.A. area or whatever, you know, it's not uncommon to seeing a macho tough like asian dude walking down the street you know full of tattoos more blue collared whatever right so my idea of masculinity has always been more blue collared i guess or like you know and then so this is this is just the weirdest thing is when i see this popping up all the time and asians talking about how we're we're this and we're that and i'm like that's not my asian america and i don't know what you're talking about and even within my circle of friends right i have military dudes i have guys that are into like extreme sports all these stuff and then like i don't picture them as this like weak incel individual that people keep saying asian men are and i'm like where what is this where does this idea come from so it's hard for me to relate but i do know that it does exist and for me, I think the idea of just being a masculine individual or someone who who is comfortable in their own skin, that's the best. Confidence is just accept who the fuck you are and be proud of that. Because like maybe you're not into fitness. Maybe you're not a macho dude. Maybe you like, you know, you got to like what you like and being comfortable with that, I think, is what you got to love about yourself. And then to me, that's being comfortable in your own skin is masculinity. You know, you don't have to you don't have to prove to the world that you're someone. To me, that's insecurity. When you're like, I, you know, I, I'm I've been weak all my life, but now I got to show the world how fucking strong I am. To me, I'm like, why? Why? That that shows even more that you're. I don't want to use the word effeminate because that's not, and that's not a wrong or negative thing, but like, can't, I can't really come up with the words, but it's more like, um, when we grew up, we said you were a little bitch. <laughs> you're because your insecurities are bleeding because you want to prove so much to the world. Like everyone's looking at you, but you're, but no one gives a damn about you. Everyone's concerned about themselves. Right. And I see this conversation coming up a lot from insecure human beings. And a part of me is like, first, I'm kind of glad that they're talking about it because maybe they can make a difference instead of suppressing it. But the other part of me is like, you know, some of the things that you do makes you look even worse. For example, when guys complain about how 
let's say they don't like me because I'm Asian or whatever. They don't find me attractive because I'm Asian. Right. To me, I'm like, maybe you individually is, uh, is unattractive, but there's a lot of really attractive Asian men that can get dates and whatever, but don't bring all of us into this stereotype and say like, Oh, you know, you know, they don't like Asian guys like us. And I'm like, shut up, maybe you. (laughs) So to me, I'm like, I, I, I really am not, I don't like to entertain these type of conversations and thoughts because to me, what it does is it enhances insecurity. It actually does the opposite. When you're, marching down the street and crying, please find me attractive. That's the most unattractive thing, right? If you're lecturing a woman to love you for who you are, that's hella unattractive. You should just be flirting. You should be, you know, showing what a great personality you have. Like, you know, just have a great conversation and just be comfortable in your own skin. And I know it sounds cliche, but it's really, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a really weird phenomenon to me where a lot of guys are just complaining, like treat me masculine, but it's like, dude, <laughs> you don't complain to own your masculinity. You just, you got to learn that confidence. Yeah. You bring up a really great point. And I think a lot of us tend to do that, right? A lot of us in the Asian community, whether it be about masculinity or not, you know, and I hate when people start to generalize and kind of like accentuate and emphasize on the stereotypes. Like we already have so many stereotypes to deal with, you know, and there are people who actually just like reinforce them to begin with. And it's just like, there's no need to do that. Right. And it does like speak volumes to what that person is thinking about themselves. Like there are a lot of people who would find them attractive. Like not everyone is like physically, you know, physical appearance is everything. You know, you just have to be confident in your own skin. And once people start seeing that, then people will become attracted to you. So I think you bring up a really great point. It's like, it really isn't about, you know, the whole Asian community. You can't generalize those stereotypes. You can't emphasize those stereotypes. You just have to be confident and you have to, you know, show the world that you're confident. Otherwise no one will, you know, be able to agree with you. No one will be able to look at you and say like, wow, that is either physically attractive or mentally attractive, whatever it may be. Like you just have to be confident and and show that to the world. On a side note, Joe, you are attractive. So I just want to make it very clear that you are sexy as fuck. <laughs> oh man, should I leave this room? <laughs> hey, I, I never get much. to tell my idols that they're sexy. Okay, so this is the first time. <laughs> but you know, you know this phenomenon though. I do think it's happening beyond just Asians. Like just redefining the word of what is masculine. It's it just seems like it's you know all around. Like like it's not just within our culture and. I don't know. It's kind of interesting. You guys, you guys kind of see that happening too. Yeah. I, I especially see like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know about your experience, but like as a 606 Asian, every time I meet, I meet Asian people that's not from California, California, the first comment I always get is, wow, you're so confident. Like, like they keep thinking we're extra cool. Like the California Asians are extra cool because we're more confident. We're more this and that. We don't care. And I think largely because of that, it's like, we never saw ourselves as a minority. That's a key word. Right. We always saw ourselves as majorities towards like, we don't know how to act like true minorities. We act like we're a majority because it's what we see every day. Like macho Asian men. I don't have, and I, I do agree with you. 
for the longest time, I didn't understand that term either. Like, oh, like you're all nerdy and stereotype is all weird. And I thought that was a pretty weird concept to me. I'm like, bro, I like, just come to my hometown. You see a bunch of dudes you don't want to mess with. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I kind of want to shift the, the conversation a bit and talk a little bit more about, about yourself. Right. And the reason why I say this, because I know I read a lot of your articles, especially the one released last year by AP about you growing in a very growing up in a very rough neighborhood. And I think for a lot of us, it's like we tend to hold on to a lot of who we were and kind of let that hold us back to who we can become. Right. And you're a classic example of that where it's like you didn't let your past hold you back. You accepted where you came from, who you are, what you learn. But the thing with, with all of us is that we have a hard time like reinventing ourselves and almost like unlearning the bad things and relearning the good things. So I want to talk, yeah. like talk to your experience too. Like how many times have you like had to like really look deep down inside and reflect and be like, wow, like I can't believe this is all happening. Me, this kid out of this city, my background imposter syndrome is kicking in. I want to hear all about that. Yeah. I feel like all of us never really completely change. Like, like you're still the same 10 year old that you were like, you're probably going to, you know, like, have you ever remembered where like, let's say you, you always wanted to do something like you had a dream to go to a theme park. Right. And you never got to go to Disneyland until you were an adult. But that was a dream that you had, like when you were nine years old and you get to be like, finally, I'm at Disneyland as a 30 year old man. And then I'm like, <laughs> but your your inner nine year old is like super happy. Right. And I feel like all humans are exactly that. So you don't, you might physically change over time. You, we might look different. You might wrinkle, you might, you know, get old, but, but then the things that you love, desire, the things that you want, it doesn't change very much. And so with that, like, although I've changed, you know, obviously like we're all meant to, we're all, and if you don't, then, then something's terribly wrong with you. But like, I don't really hold on to my old beliefs, because I think as we learn and grow, like we just keep moving forward. But I do look back and go, man, this is pretty awesome because I never thought that life could be like this. You know, like I didn't know that I was going to have an entertainment company for over a decade and be freelance, be have a business, start investing into things. But then the way I operate is maybe different from other business people or whatever, because a lot of my friends are very strategic in how they live life. Like, they have a goal, they have a plan, they have a route, they take those steps forward. And I do that to a certain degree because the way I go is I have like a feeling or an inspiration and I go, you know what? This is missing. This is missing in the world. This is missing for me. Let me just do it and see where it goes. And I take little baby steps towards something. And then before you knew it, I'm at the top of the mountain. And I wasn't aiming to go to the top of the mountain. I was just kind of going through this trail. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. I mean, it is interesting to see how people, how different people strategize their lives differently. Right. And I totally understand. I think especially, well, I wouldn't say like, especially in the Asian community, but a lot of people, you know, they want to plan their lives out. They want to, you know, have a kid by this age or like get married by this age or have a job by this age and everything is planned out and they can't miss a beat. Yeah. Right. But it's interesting to hear you say like, you know, maybe this is something missing in my life. I'm going to, I'm going to fulfill this. I'm, I'm going to go for it. But you know, some people may never get to that top of the mountain, but you're actually able to make those steps to get to that mountain, right? Even if it's spontaneous. Mm -hmm. So I love that you have this sort of, you know, ability to 
really take a step back and like reflect on your life and be like, okay, what's missing in my life and what do I need to do to achieve it? And I mean, we can definitely see that a lot has came to fruition, you know, based on everything that you've gone through and everything that became successful for you. I feel like there's different stages that people have to complete psychologically. It's kind of like a video game, right? Like I, I, I think the first stage is people have a dream. Like they go, oh, wouldn't life be great if I had a, a surf shop and I can like rent surfboards and surf all day? Or like they have an idea for their passion or, or like, you know, I, I love freaking oceanography. I want to be a dolphin trainer or whatever. And then that's where it starts, because I think most people, are, um, they go throughout life doing as they're told their parents kind of, especially in our community, you know, the parents kind of set that strategy for you. They think for you, they create a plan. And it's been like that for hundreds of years because of Con- Confucianism. So this concept of individual like happiness, individual pursuit is a new concept for Asian Americans, Asians in general, because uh, it's always been a system of hierarchy where the last generation is supposed to have more wisdom. So they create a plan, create a route with their expertise. They go, you're going to marry this person. You're going to, you know, and then so we're disrupting the system of our culture right now. So when you, you know, when they move to a Western nation, and the philosophy is more individual rather than the family unit. It kind of creates a lot of tension because their parents, our parents are trying to do what they were taught how to do it. Right. And they followed the system. And then for us now, we got to go individually and we go, you know what? I have my own journey to follow. I have my own free will. I want to do my own thing. And they're like, why are you such bad kids? And that's where the conflict comes. And I've been thinking about creating like a whole book behind this and all that, because all of us went through this and all of us felt the pain of being like, oh, we're disappointing our parents, but we have our personal desires. So let's say that's the first stage, right? You want to pursue your goal. You want to do your own thing. You don't want to be an engineer, a fucking lawyer, doctor or whatever. And then you become a dolphin trainer. And then so this is the pivotal point in most you know, people from Asian families is do I disrespect? Do I pursue what I want? Do I do the stable thing? And they have to figure this out all on their own. If they take that leap of faith and then they go through that and then they kind of disobey community, parents, whatever, and they prove to themselves that they can actually earn a living doing this stably, that's the first step. Once they can psychologically build this independence, then it turns into what else can I do? And what else can I hack in my life? What else can I overcome? And before you know it, it's no longer a question of, Will I one day be able to pursue my dreams? Now it's just going to be, what's the next project? And I feel like that's where I'm at now after, you know, all of those years of proving to myself that I can basically feed myself doing any imagination that I have. And I think that that's probably a good kind of like roadmap for Asian Americans that want to kind of break through and then overcome their fears and then, you know, basically walk toward all the desires that they want. I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, like you're at the point where you're no longer held back by any sort of like restrictions, boundaries or anything. You feel limitless right now. Like you feel like you proved enough to yourself that you can make anything and practically anything happen. 
And that's from accumulation of years and years of little wins that compile up together that really showed you, Hey, I can do it. And I can do something really amazing in my life. And that's, that's honestly an amazing spot to be, man. So congratulations on that. Thanks, man. I mean, it doesn't, the worry and the fears and then the pressure doesn't end, but it gets different. It's just different. So like the first might be, you know, how your aunt sees you (laughs) or whatever. Right. And then you overcome that. And then let's say like like you build a business, but now it's about like how your customer sees you and you got to overcome that. Or like all these things just morph into different and you just get better at dealing with it. Oh, and I think that's what it is. It's kind of like if you're into fitness, you know, you just become stronger and stronger or any skill. Like, you know, if you keep doing it every day. Definitely. Consistency matters, man. And you just become a better and stronger person. So I want to talk a little more about Jomalia because uh, I was watching your skits and I was under the impression that this is a private country, a private island. So <laughs> now that I hear it's a course to help other people, <laughs> how, did, how did you make that transition to like one day to be like, okay, like I want to take on this challenge of building a stronger community that bringing resources that I don't necessarily have. Right. And I want to hear more about Jomalia in the first, that's like to frame the context about that a bit because it's in your skits, but I want to hear about like what, what led you up to like the creation of this course. Yes. So basically over all of these years, right? Like I would get a lot of messages from fans like, Hey, I want to pursue like this and that. And like, how do I do it? And just, I started realizing that I just want to figure out a way to compile all the things that worked out for me and pass that on. And then, um, especially because my fans, make me who I am anyway, you know, and then uh, it's just a little passion project of mine, but I've been running it for about four or five years now. And I decided to just basically take it all offline and keep it within the, the fan base that followed through with it. But it all, it all started because people kept asking me the same questions. Like I want to pursue this. How do I become that? How do I save money? How do I make this? I want to, I want to make more money. I want to open up a business and it's the same questions over and over. And I created a whole video course to answer all that. Yeah. So instead I could just link them that instead of, (laughs) instead of uh, me explaining it to them all the time. That's so amazing. And it just speaks volumes to the person that you are, because, you know, I think a lot of us tend as business owners, um, we we do see a lot of people who keep everything to themselves, right? They learn all of this useful information, resources, whatever it may be. And, you know, we are actually rooted in a lot of competition, you know, growing up, our parents always like, at least my parents always compared me to my cousins and stuff like that. And there's a lot of competition and there's a lot of like, be better than this person. Don't share your knowledge or information to other people. But I love that you are using this opportunity and your platform to share all the knowledge that you have. So it's just incredible that you're doing that. And just going back to your original point, you know, there are so many barriers that we have to go through. You know, that first part is like believing in yourself, right? That's the first part. And once you're able to do that, after you believe in yourself and you're able to prove to yourself that you can do it, then the second part is like being able to prove to your family or being able to prove to your community. And, you know, going back to competition, there's there's going to be a lot of people who won't believe in you too. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're going to like put you down. They're going to say, you can't do this. And that's something that 
Brian and I had to deal with too, with Asian Hustle Network. A lot of people said we couldn't build a business growing a community. Like, where's the money in that? And, you know, how are you going to... Honestly, they're still not wrong. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But we were able to do it. You know, we started a business from Asian Hustle Network and just wanted to commend you for, you know, all the things that you're doing to give back to your community because that's really where the value is and where you're able to gain a lot from, not only from like a business perspective, but just like impact perspective, right? And I want to know, like you, you had, you know, you were tired of your nine to five job. You, I think, there was this article that mentioned that you didn't even know what a GPA was and you actually came out of the top of your class when you were graduating college. Right. And so just like taking that step back, I want to know like what made that transition? Like what made you think back and say like, man, I didn't do so well in high school or I don't know if you did well or not, but (laughs) judging from the fact that you didn't know what a GPA was, but what was that turning point like for you? And what made you decide to turn your life around a little bit? I also want to add on that too. I want to hear about your, your lows, your low moments. We don't talk about that enough, man. We don't talk about those, those hardships. Let's Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I would say, for most of my life, I hated school. I didn't understand it. I didn't know the reasons why. It started in elementary school. I asked my mom, I was like, I wanna stay home and play with my toys. Why do I gotta go to school? And she goes, so you could get a job. And I'm like, why do I need a job? And she goes, cause you need money, you dumbass. And I'm like, why do I need money? And then she goes, so you could like pay your bills and all that. And I'm like, well, you guys don't pay your bills. I always have the bill collectors calling at the house and you tell me not to pick up the phone. And then like, and I watched them and my, you know, our, our, the boomer generation, they work and then they try to keep up with the Joneses, right? My dad was in mad debt. He was always buying shit, you know, buying new cars. And I was just like, I don't want that life. Like, why would I want to work to death? My parents are never home. This is stupid. So school is the route for that destiny. That's ridiculous. I have way more fun playing with my friends. You know, like recess was my favorite topic. All the other stuff. I was like, I'm not going to learn this stuff. It's not going to make me money. And so from a young, young, young age, like I just never applied myself in school. And in high school, I ditched so much. I probably only had a year of it. Right. But also throughout life, I was told I was a dumbass from teachers, from people. Um, And it's probably because I was such a difficult kid. And if something didn't make sense for me, I wasn't going to follow it. And so I got into trouble. And what that did was it created a relationship between me and authority where I'm like, you're dumb because you can't explain to me why something is important. (laughs) I was an arrogant little narcissistic kid. (laughs) And, And because of that, you know, I think it easily drew me in to like the gang life and the drugs and then the partying because I was like, yo, these guys, they're making money. And that was another thing too, is for, for some reason at like at a really young age, I wanted to start making money. And I remember like in fourth grade, my, my friends would go out and they would collect cans and then they would, they would, they got into a partnership where they would collect all these cans and then they saved up for a Nintendo. And I was like, damn, you could get cans, recycle them, get money, and you could get a Nintendo. That is so genius. So I started thinking of all these different things. Like, what about if I mow someone's lawn and they'll give me money? So I would, you know, grab my friend's lawnmower, go door to door, ask them if they want their grass cut. 
get money. Right. So I would stop asking my parents for things because my dad would never get me the things that I wanted. And I started thinking of creative ways to make money on my own, sell candy at school, whatever, whatever. Right. So over the years, school became a thing of like, I just have to go to this babysitting program. And because everyone kept calling me a dumbass and whatever, after high school, I was like, man, am I really that dumb? And I started to believe it. I thought I, I probably am dumb and I'm never, you know, meant for school because if you grew up in a hood, you know, like you don't think college is ever for you. It's not accessible. I thought college was a place for, for geniuses. I thought it was only for people who were extremely intelligent, like Einstein. It wasn't for everyday people. And then that's why I didn't know what a GPA was. I never applied myself. And in the type of high school I went to, I remember in our ninth grade class, what we were doing in U.S. history was we had a we had the state, the map of the U.S. And we would have to crayon in different states and then uh, write the capital. And I was like, that's elementary school shit. And I wasn't in special school. So that's the level of education that they were telling, teaching ninth graders, man. And, and I felt so insulted and I felt like this was such a stupid place to be. But anyways, because all of this, like, I guess, like reinforcement of what a dumbass I was in college, my buddy was like, hey, you should go to college with me, community college. And I'm like, why? He goes, they give you free money. And I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, we're broke. So we get financial aid. <laughs> so I basically abused the government's financial aid program so I could buy a, buy a pound of marijuana. Like <laughs> it was like at the time it was really great. They gave us like four grand every semester. So I had no idea, right, that you have to keep a C average, a 2.0. In my head, I made the assumption that if I didn't have straight A's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to give this money back. So for a year straight, I got straight A's because I was I was worried that, you know, all this money I was going to have to pay back one day. But on the side, I was buying and selling weed, you know. And so to me, I was like, school's great. And in college, your professors are much more different than high school. They cuss, they're cooler. They talk about partying and all this stuff. So I felt like education is kind of cool. And no one treated me like a dumbass. So a part of me just wanted that validation of I could beat this system that's been calling me dumb for all my life and I can beat it and I can become and I can win in it. And so I just wanted to get good grades to basically prove. I don't know. No one was watching me, but I wanted to prove to myself that I can win in something that is, you know, who I thought was only for smart people. And that became kind of my introduction into the mainstream world. It really opened up my eyes. Like I went to a job fair and in the job fair, you would see like different, you know, like companies there. And they're like, yeah, if you become a dental hygienist, you could start making like 70 grand a year or whatever. And I was like, that's crazy. 70 grand a year. That's a lot of money because my mom raised me on like 20 grand a year. So I thought that was normal. Right. I thought working minimum wage was normal and you can pay all your rent and bills that way. So I felt like a boy from the jungle that 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 got into the, the civilized world. And slowly I was learning all this common sense stuff that wasn't common sense to me. And from that point on, I really wanted to know, like, what else is out there? You know, but that that was kind of my introduction to 
how I wanted to apply myself in school, my journey through that. And um, you mentioned about the downs in my life. Talk about the depression Man. time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even I don't even know where to start, bro. Like <laughs> we're starting we're starting yeah. the first depression, and then we'll go to your your latest depression. <laughs> my late God. Okay. Well, I feel like um, life is interesting, right? Because it's never one thing. Like you can have a loving father that takes you to fun events, but still beats your ass. Everything is got multi faces. And then I think right now we're living in a world where people are being kind of stereotyped as one thing like, Oh, you are, you are this, you are a chauvinist, you are, you know, and then especially now, like people are really like all up into titles, but I don't believe a human being is one thing and they can never be one thing. Right. But I think like you can be in a shitty situation, but find the joy in it. And I think that's where my comedy comes from because there were times really, really dark times. Like when I was um, going through all the, 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 the lowest points in my early years, I remember coming home from like a party binge at like 14 years old. And my mom was like, did you even notice that your father has been gone for a week? And then at that time I was like, I was high every single day. So I'm like, I said no. And I went to sleep and my mom fell into a spiral of a depression. And I remember being like 14 thinking like, mom, you are a weak ass bitch. You're you trapped yourself in the room. And now I have to be the man of the house and somebody has to make some money in this house. So I started upgrading from selling weed to ecstasy because it made more money. And I never wanted to be home. And I think that like that point is when I felt completely independent but also lonely. And I found myself with a handful of other kids that were just kind of neglected. Right. And I, I remember like at such an early age, it's, it's a weird point when you can't trust anybody, like you can't trust your own parents. You can't trust the friends that you're with. And it made me extremely isolated and sad, but at the same time, it taught me the most craziest independence like where I felt like I could live through anything at that point because I was too young to work and to pay my own things. But I figured out a way to eat. I figured out a way to sleep in different places. I figured out like how to kind of survive and all the things that I learned from there. I feel like it kind of pushed me to who I am today. But um, yeah, like whenever I talk about the lows, it's it's hard for me to only talk about lows because there's always like the highs that come along with it. Like there are, of course there were, you know, there was a lot of depression and all that, but also there was a lot of fun partying too. Like you get a bunch of like high school kids together with no adult supervisions. Some of the best memories came from that shit, you know? So it's, it's hard to say like, yeah, it was a tough time in my, in my life, in my family. And I think I take that philosophy for everything. Like, you know, life constantly has these ups and downs that we can't control. And I would say like recently, you know, I would say like the, the climate has changed for comedy. This is, this is something that's really, I guess, sad for me, but, but I'm trying to figure it out right now, but we're living in this culture of like, everything is canceling. Like you're, you're wrong for saying this. A lot of it's popular to virtue signal. It's popular to be like a hall monitor. Right. And you guys might be saying like, oh, you 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 guys, JK, you um, helped out the Asian community. 
But now there's a, a completely different narrative of people saying that we damaged the Asian community and everyone has different perspectives. That's fine. But I feel like it's very unfair to sit there and condemn those without having a conversation. I never did that. Like I never pointed fingers. I never wanted to like throw rocks at people without even understanding who they are. And it's so much easier to cast judgment and say like, you guys are a bunch of fuckheads and all you did was hold us back. And I'm like, really, did we really, really destroy the whole perception of who you are a complete stranger? That makes no sense to me. It, 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 um, it, it breaks my heart. Like, cause of how much I gave to the community, but at the same time, I know that the world is kind of changing in the way that they see things and then the way they see comedy is changing. So it's like a good lesson for me to kind of figure out the new era and how to navigate through that. Yeah. You bring up a really good point. I mean, we are going through this new like generation and this whole cancel culture is really, really big. And, you know, I think certain points in time, like certain cases, like, okay, that's understandable, you know, whatever. But a lot of people tend to generalize. And even if it's like 10 years ago, they'll like find something to nitpick. Right. And same thing for Asian Hustle Network. There's a lot of people who are really, really grateful for the community. But then, you know, sometimes you'll get people who are hating on you and that's everyone's entitled to their own opinion. But I do agree with you. Like you can't be generalizing and blaming if you don't even have the time to like sit down and have a conversation with them and try to understand, you know, because it's easy to like point out every little single bad thing, but like, what is that person doing to help the community? Like what, you know? Yeah. Yeah, It's easy to me to, it's, I think it's so easy to point the finger and judge, Mm -hmm. but I wish the world had a little bit more empathy and like, if we could just, um, you know, I feel like a lot of people, they have their own reasons, right. And perspectives of why they do something. And to me, I'm so interested in what makes like, what's their motive? Why do they do it? Instead of just passing judgment and saying like, Oh, I know why they do it. They do it because they hate us. And it's like, that's not always the case. And maybe it's because of my like entertainment background or the storytelling background, but I'm so fascinated with human beings because I feel like we all share the same reality, the physical reality, but everyone has such a, a diverse, unique story that shapes their understanding of the world. Like all three of us are Asian Americans, right? But we have such a different background. When when they see us in the group, they're not going to look at us and be like, oh, you guys are weird friends. But it might be that we have really, really unique differences too that make us who we are. And those in-between nuances and those stories, I feel like are really, really interesting. But what we do now is we categorize, we generalize, we just make, oh, as an Asian American male, this is how I feel. It's like, to me, those things already create a bias and an identity of who people expect you to be. And that's really messed up because what it does is it limits the person. It limits the individual to express who they are and their own story. And to me, I I wish there was a way that we can kind of like find a middle ground where like, it's awesome to have a community 
you know, and I don't want to completely be like, I'm not even Asian. Cause then that's like denying your culture and everything, but then not let that be your complete identity and who you are. Yeah. These are just my opinions too, but I feel like a lot of these people who are voicing this new culture are tend to be in the younger generation. Right. And the way that I see it, it's like, when I look at you, Joe, I feel like complete relatability because I grew up with your content. I mean, I've been watching it since my, my early teenage years to now. And I feel like a lot of people passing these judgments aren't exposed to that, right? And then see, then come up with you and see things the way they are. And let's be honest, a lot of these kids are probably born within the last you know, 15, 20 years, right? They didn't see what it took for you guys as the pioneers to get, even get to this point. So the lack of empathy is not through just empathy alone. It's through the information that's out there, it's through their idols, through whatever, not really seeing things from our perspective. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's just, how, just how I feel about like this generation too. And I'm starting to feel like the, I don't know why this image of like, like um, the Simpsons where uh, grandpa Simpson was like, I don't know what you kids are talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we're not even that old, man. I feel like, I feel like it's, it's not even a generational thing. Maybe it's, it's more of a difference in like cultural groups right now. Cause I feel like back in the day, Asians, yeah, they had different pockets, right? Like we talked earlier about how like, you know, Asians didn't really like come as one, but our experience, our shared experience was much more closer. And, and why I know this is because like back then, like there wasn't that many differences in pop culture. Like all of us, like when we, we, we all watched home alone, all of us, like, you know, went to pizza hut for a birthday or whatever. We have these shared memories. Right. But the new generation though, is there's so much of these different subcultures that they don't have one shared experience. And I think that's, that's the difference that's happening is like, we all could be like, yeah, we grew up on um, saved by the bell and we all get it. And we're like, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. And so there's a lot of like cultural phenomenons that we can all agree or like relate to. Whereas like all these new kids, like they just might be totally weaved out and doing K-pop stuff. While another one is like completely different and doing like in a different world. So I think it's, yeah, it's, it's different in that sense. So there's all these competing thoughts in different realities, even with like uh, politics too, right? It's right. it's completely di- like what's the word divided? I don't know. Diverse. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <There's laughs> diverse, many- but also in a bad way. I don't know. <laughs> there's there's yeah. too many things to do out there nowadays. So it's like you know, younger folks are growing up, and they have so many different ways to grow up, and you know, experiences are so different. But in while we were growing up, we we had only like you know less than ten things that you know we could do, and so I I totally agree with you. We're our shared experiences bring us closer together. So I think that's why, you know, it's a little I bit different I feel like if you're us. a 2000s Asian, you listen to trance. <laughs> Somebody that you knew or you had a, Mango. Uh, a rice rocket. Oh, DJ yeah. Mango. Oh my goodness. You went to import, you went to import shows. <laughs> Someone always had a birthday party that was like a rave. <laughs> yeah. So true. That's a, that's a Someone six had six spiky experience. hair. <laughs> six to six starter kit right there <laughs> you wore converse or adidas superstars or cortezes <laughs> oh man that's hilarious so joe what would you say is like 
has been your biggest accomplishment so far? I mean, just like hearing your story is just so amazing. And it's even more amazing knowing that you did not even expect all of this to happen. And it's so different from your experiences growing up, you know, growing up in in a school where you didn't even think that they cared about the students at all to kind of reinventing yourself. Right. And knowing that there's a reason, you know, to go to school, whether whether that be for, you know, to learn and actually do well or to buy marijuana. No, no, savvy businessman. Don't say buy savvy. marijuana. <laughs> savvy hustler. <laughs> savvy businessman and a hustler. Um, but what would you say is like collectively your biggest accomplishment? That I'm on this podcast. <laughs> I'm finally on the Asian Hustle Network podcast. No, um, it's, it's God, that's a hard question because it's like, was there one thing that made me feel super accomplished? Okay. I would say not one thing, but one desire that I had, which was when I was working, you know, nine to five jobs or like when I was working, you know, just different things, like from being a waiter to whatever. Right. I, I always like looked at the company and said, if this was mine, I'd do it so differently. And then one day I was able to create my own company and treat the people and the team and, and do things the way that I wanted it to do. Cause like people were like, no, you can't have, you know, a month of vacation. How you, how's your business going to make money and all this stuff. They, they said a lot of this stuff was impossible, but I, I took different models of what I've seen. Like in Japan, I think they give you, or, or in Europe, they give you like pretty long vacations. Right. So for almost a decade straight, I here at JK, we take a whole month off. So everyone gets paid 12 months, but they work 11 Cause I wanted people to be with family, you know, especially like in a town like LA, a lot of people are here pursuing whatever they are. And I wanted them to go back home and have some, you know, so some of that family time. So we take the two weeks off of December, two weeks off in January, and also like two bonuses throughout the year. And we share a lot of our profits, but to me, I know that it's possible because we're a small company. And at one point, the biggest, you know, team we had was about 30 people on payroll, but it's still small compared to like a major corporation or anything like that. But the, the kind of memories and and the camaraderie and, and the things that I was able to create based off of whatever I wanted, that's when I was like, dang, this is awesome. Not only that I achieve the dreams that I wanted to, I was able to take hella people along with me on the journey. And it's true what they say, like, a lot of this stuff is cool when you make it on your own, but it's even better when you share it. It's like a potluck. Like when you bring your dish to the table and you share it with your friends and you have a great time together, it's way better than going to a fancy restaurant alone. So that's my philosophy with life. And, and I think that achieving what I dreamed of when people had no idea of what that would turn out like, right? Like everyone, they go to, they go to work and think that is the standard of work. And I think right now, especially with the pandemic, the idea of work is even changing. Like the great resignation, people are just firing, like getting like quitting in droves. Right. And even this whole hustle culture of like people just working just to work, all of this is being redefined. And for me, I was like, we've been working like pandemic style, (laughs) you know, we've been like not really with an office, just working wherever we want to like freelancers and whatever. And it's kind of cool seeing it all happen, especially now with the pandemic. Cause I was like, it kind of makes me feel like I was right. <laughs> not only was I able to do it 
way early on, but then now I see the world doing it too. I love that. I love how you had this vision and you follow through with that. And I absolutely appreciate that too. I feel like nowadays we're not really confined. There's so many tools out there, right? You're not really confined to the traditional career. And you absolutely agree that people are catching on that there's more to life than just going to work, slaving away and then enjoying like the last 20 years of your life where you practically have no energy to enjoy it, which doesn't yeah. make any sense to me. Um, so Joe, I we love have- hustling though. Like I love working. I think yeah. that it's cool, but it's the intention and the mode motive and not burning out, but hustling toward like, even, even I, I, um, I hustle to relax, you know, like <laughs> relaxing is hustling too, because it's like, you need the rest. So you can progress, right? You gotta, you got you gotta chill before you like go out and it's, it's a balance. You gotta sleep or else it's just toxic hustling. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So Joe, we have one final question. And that question is, you know, you've been in a partnership with Barb for so long now you're practically married to the guy. Like what, what master relationship question, what are keys to a successful partnership that you can talk about in your own experience? I didn't realize how lucky I was to have a business partner like Bart too, because we organically were great friends. And I know that a lot of it's like uh, people out there go through partnerships, groups and stuff. And they go through like this unfortunate, like, like breakup or whatever. And I've seen it and I felt so lucky all the time because for one, we're very similar in personality. So we did the whole Myers-Briggs test and he is an INTJ and I'm an ENTJ. So I'm the extroverted version of what Bart is. And I think that having a like-minded business partner helps. But more than that, it's being able to communicate completely honest all the time without holding resentment, without holding anything back and also thinking of the company first and knowing the difference between your ego and what you want for the company. So sometimes we get things mixed up with, I think this is going to be great for the company, not knowing that that's a selfish need. That's the something that you, you want to like, you doing it because you're prideful. Right. And, and once you can work that out, then it's smooth sailing. Cause then your partner's going to feel like they, they, you got their back all the time. But when you start wanting to take the glory, when you start becoming prideful, and this is difficult for people to identify because no one knows when they're being prideful. No one knows when they're being egotistical. It's just that they're something's triggered and then they're starting to react. Right. And then people got to be very self-aware. So yes, me and Bar, we, we've been through many arguments and all that stuff. But there's a level of trust of never fucking each other over. There's a level of trust of like, I know that what he says is what he means because some people can become passive aggressive or some people can be biting their tongue. But I think that in order to achieve something, you have to be completely honest and complete. Like you have, you got to be able to communicate. And if you try to be modest in the business place between two partners, you're, you're going to end up resenting the other partner. Cause you're like, well, I fucking bent my back over for you. And it's like, they never fucking asked you to, you should have just been honest from the start, say what you want. And when you hash things out, you just got to move on. And it sounds pretty like cliche and like, duh, but it's interesting how many people are afraid of conflict, are afraid of speaking their mind, are afraid of being like completely honest with each other. And I think the reason why things break up is because of that and selfishness. 
Man, that was so powerful. I, I I was like almost tearing up and just hearing you say that you are so you feel so lucky to have a partnership with Bart like that. I mean, you two are such amazing people. You know, we've spoken to Bart separately and you guys are very, very alike. That is true. And you guys both really care about the community. And I'm, I'm just both Brian and I are just so happy for the both of you. I know we're extremely grateful for the both of you. And, you know, Maggie's a lot stronger than me. She almost cried. But I was, I was crying, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would say one of the, the hardest things for business is human beings, human beings yeah. and yourself, you know, emotions, all that. Like a lot of people, they get, really bogged down in the technical stuff like oh what's the best product and what's the best system and it's like but they don't even take the time to look at how they process information or like how they uh treat other people or like how they do they even know themselves and and i and i love business because it's almost like a slap in the face with a with the reality and a you get to you get to look at yourself in the mirror and you can't hide and then it's the best way to develop. Well, at least for me yourself, when you can't really hide from the fact that if you don't have customers, you, your product just sucks. You got to face it. You can't, you can make all these excuses as you want, or like, there's a lot of pain that comes along with it, but it's a lot of growth too. And I'm hella fortunate with that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for sharing that, Joe. So where can our listeners find out more about you and just kidding news and everything that you have going on online? Yeah. So I'm really not this serious on my other platforms. I fuck around a lot. It's just for this, you know, I felt like I got to get deep down and personal, but if you want to listen to me and my buddies shoot the shit and, and have a lot, uh, have a, have a good time on a news channel. It's just kidding news. You can check that out on YouTube. Also, I have a personal channel where I just go around and again, like mess around adventure <laughs> it has nothing to do with my businesses. Sometimes I'm just, I'm just going on vacation all the time. That's my name, Joe Jitsukawa on YouTube. And same for my Instagram. You can just see me messing around. I think like all I do is just mess around. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we love most about your content anyway <laughs> i hear you i hear the secret sauce is just to mess around <laughs> yeah just gotta have fun <laughs> yeah awesome we'll leave all of that in the show notes joe thank you so much for being on our podcast today it was awesome having you on thanks thank for so having much. me thanks so much joe we appreciate it hey guys we hope you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the show we would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.